0: This is episode number 77, I forgive, but I can't forget, with Tanya Cooper. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and I'm the host of the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you. To help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Today's review of the week comes from Daniela Galdi. Listening to Oleg and those sharing their stories through the Overcoming Odds podcast offers me so much valuable perspective. To keep moving forward past my own personal struggles, especially with mental health and the limitations that I feel. Hearing people's process and being able to implement their words of wisdom and positive inner dialogue is such an inspiration in continuing in my journey to start a dialogue to connect with others who are facing similar experiences. I was really blown away when I first listened to and look forward to new episodes and guests. Very powerful stuff that is making an impact and helping to break the silence for many who feel isolated or alone along their journey. Thank you so much, Daniela, for the wonderful review. If you want to be featured on Review of the Week, please go ahead and leave us that review on iTunes. It's that simple, and if you do, you may just get a special gift because of it. Now, let's get back to our guest. This week's episode features Tanya Cooper, Executive Director at Foster Kids Unite, Inc. Tanya's life in foster care began at 5 years old due to her birth mother's addiction and neglect and would eventually end with her being separated from all but one of her siblings. Aging out of the foster care system at 18, with no family and place to go, Tanya signed herself up back in till the age of 21. While in care, she survived being abused by two foster brothers. In this episode, Tanya discusses how she has been able to forgive her abusers, but not forget what took place. Being a fighter and working against all odds, she was able to attend the Fashion Institute of Technology for two years and would eventually find herself being sent off to Paris to model. Her mission in life is to change the lives of children by teaching youth to take charge of their own lives, as you are your only hero. Without further ado, please welcome tanya cooper welcome back to another episode of the overcoming Outs podcast today's guest is a friend of mine her name is tanya cooper she's the executive director of foster kids unite inc she's an author motivational speaker and a comedian tanya welcome to the show
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story before we get started. And, you know, what interested me the most about the experiences that you've been able to go through and how you define them as who you are today was this concept, and we spoke about it a little bit before, of uh, loneliness. You know, I think this is a topic that we can all relate to because... I mean, there's numerous moments within my life that I can relate of being lonely and the different impacts that it had on my life and my actions Mm -hmm. that I was able to take with it. So the way that I would like to start out this particular episode is, um, ask you this question of, you know, do we ever get rid of the loneliness? Does it ever get, does it ever go away?
1: Mm. Well, Here's the thing. So uh, I've been asking myself, I'm now 54, even though my birth family said I could be younger, but I'm 54 (laughs) in technical terms now. They changed my age when I was seven to nine. So I could be, younger. I don't know. My birth aunts insists that I'm not 54, but it doesn't matter. Uh, So um, I've been asking that question, gosh, since I went to foster care, since I was five years old. Uh, And and every year, um, you know, I'm surrounded around more and more people um, brilliant people, um, but I still feel like I'm on an island somewhere. And I always felt like, um, you know, like I never, I never belonged to a tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, just felt like I don't know. It was really weird. But lately, I've still, even I got my, when I have my kids, then I was like, okay, this is my tribe right here. Uh, but I still have the loneliness, I guess, is the word I'm using. Um, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why why it doesn't go away. But it's okay. I'm okay with it today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Guys, my goodness. I'm really How- okay.
0: How does it impact your life um, right now? I know that you've shared different components of your story as far as you know, going through therapy and, and being able to work on um, redefining some of the experiences that you had in your life, which we'll get into a little bit later on. But how does that concept of loneliness, does it change anything for you right now?
1: Um, well, uh, it does in a way. I mean, you know, I, I got to say my daughter teases me and says well you don't go anywhere to, to get on the loan. <laughs> <laughs> it's true she's right i just I, she's like you go to mike's like are you really going to date a comic really
2: mm-hmm. and uh
1: and like uh and then i socialize yeah i go out like i might force myself like once a month to go out and go sit and and with a friend uh have a have a drink or something but i really just i don't know i like to. i rather sit home and write which which is probably why i'm lonely because that's a very uh there's no one around and you can't talk and write
2: mm-hmm.
1: now. So maybe that's, I'm contributing to this loneliness, but, but it, it deep down there is a feeling uh, that I think is associated with foster care of being a foster kid mm-hmm. of loneliness, Uh And I don't know why it won't go away. It just never goes. It's like, it just sits there. It's not bad anymore. It used to not, anymore. but now um, at least it's, I'm comfortable with it mm-hmm. and I know what it is um, and how it, I don't know if it, um, does it affect me? Hmm. It does, I'm sure. I probably could have a better dating life at this point in my life. Hmm. I haven't been a date in like a year, so it probably does affect me. Because <laughs> I'm getting used to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? And that's not, I don't think that's normal nor healthy uh, to get used to it. The hashtag hermit.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, so so I got to, I'm working on that. That's my work this year
2: to mm-hmm. work on
1: being lonely, even to you sit at the museum for 10
2: hours. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, one of, one of the things that I've learned from my experience is I think loneliness is just like any other topic. And that is the more you create environments when it exists, it ultimately does become you. And so, you know, one of the things that interested me about your particular ex- experience and the story that you shared with us of going through the foster care system was that you have had a lot of different experiences happen along that journey. And you are at a point right now, where you don't allow them to define you, and who you can become. And I think that's the most important part with any subject is being able to get to a point where you recognize the experiences for what they are. And then you're able to look at them in an entirely different way. So um, I want to take a step back and actually have you share a little bit about your story and your foster care experience to begin with. You know, can you take us a little bit from as far back as you can remember and how you actually ended up going through that system and the experiences that you were, you um, went through and then um, how you were able to kind of develop this mindset where you don't look at them in the same way that you used to back in the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, th- let me share my story. So, um, so as I told many before, I was, I went to foster care at five years old. Um, my mom was uh, a heroin addict, alcoholic, uh, and she would abandon us and neglect this. Uh, and, you know, uh, she meant, well, she didn't do it intentionally, uh, but now that I work as a drug and alcohol counselor, I can totally understand why she did it. It wasn't really her. It was the illness um, mm-hmm. that that allowed her to forget that, no, you're not being gone for two hours. You've been gone for four days. Uh, and uh, you forgot to pay the light bill so, because you used the money. So now there is no light. So we'd be often left with lights, no lights, no food. Um, you know, just me, my, my well, it was the three of us at first because Mark, she was pregnant with Mark. We went into foster care about a month um, after, Mark, after Mark was born. Uh, we went into foster care. Um, and a matter of fact, I'll never forget it was in November because he was born in October. Yeah, so, um, you know, it was just her, you know, forgetting track of time is really how we went into foster care. Uh, and we it avoided it for so long, actually, when I think about it. I can tell you many incidents where I'm surprised that they didn't come, uh, including when I fell and busted my eye open um, on a swing outside. We snuck outside to play, which we weren't allowed to do because of this very reason. Mm-hmm. uh but for some reason she actually for once we don't know how but she showed up just as the ambulance was like all right we got to pull off and my sister was stalling and she showed up uh just in time running with, with actual groceries in her hand we were like what groceries what's that <laughs> in our house you know butter was looked at like the sirloin steak pretty much um, it, i mean i'm not trying to make fun of it but but i have to make i do do comedy about it because it's true it's mm-hmm. not you know, when you're in it, I was starving and until this day I don't like you I don't like anyone to tell me that I cannot eat. That's a pop, that's a problem for me. It's mm. it's, a, it's a, in my brain to make me say, Oh my god, I'm gonna starve again because when they got me we were very emancipated. We were very malnourished, malnourished. So, you know, I, I you know, food's a thing of mine. But this was during the nineteen I was born in the This is in the seventies, um, pretty much, and you know how drugs were flooded into the neighborhood mm-hmm. of Vietnam. Pretty much, uh, pretty much every area in any in, uh, in inner city area, in city area, but pretty much Brooklyn, they—that's where you got all your, you know, your classic buildings. I call them because uh, they were flooded. That era was flooded, and you had just lost Dr. King, Martin um, Kennedy. You lost uh, Malcolm X. So civil rights kind of wasn't so civil, as I talk about in my book, Surviving Foster Care and Making It Work for You. Um, I talk about that—that you know, what, what was really civil? You got rights that are not working for you. So imagine being a mother and your, your husband's off at war and, you know, now these drugs came in the neighborhood, you're poor, things are desolate, you don't really have a great support, jam, support system. What would you do? I mean, really. So my mm-hmm. mother actually having two babies out of wedlock with, uh, with my, um, my father and my brother's father. Um, actually, three, I think. I want to say three of us. Mark's father, uh, who passed away when, when we were young, um, you know, from heroin abuse, unfortunately um, And uh, so you've got four kids My baby brother Mark, who I'm still looking for By the way, He, he was adopted up to a of family In Elmsford, two doctors Two African American doctors in Elmsford, New York uh, So I'm still looking for him, which is why I do a lot of radio I'm going to make a documentary on, on Aging out and, uh, and I still want my own late night TV show Because I'm sure I'll find him or find out Something about him
2: mm-hmm.
1: If I ever achieve that, that goal uh, so why uh, why addiction? So my mom, you know, like I said before, I think it was just the time. You know, racism was really big and real. Uh, and being there, well, I thought we thought my grandfather was white. I just found out recently by doing the ancestry and pulling the senses that he actually, his father was actually half black So or something. So so they were passing, I guess you would call it, because, you know, I had blondish hair, blue eyes, and that to me, he didn't look, he looked like a white guy. Uh, but, but we found out he wasn't fully white. So that's another story. So it, it probably was even rougher for my mom. They're from Louisiana. Uh, and it was her and her 10 or 11 siblings. Let me see. With her, makes 11 siblings. There's two I didn't meet because they passed um, either when I was in foster care or something uh, or before I was born. Um, so he had all these siblings, but everybody's on drugs pretty much, except for like two or three of my aunts or uncle. Yeah, except for two, one. Two, I think, separate two, yeah, except two of my, maybe three of my aunts. Uh-huh. Everybody else was not, pretty much. Um, and I think it's just the time. It's a very depressing time. Uh, so anyway, uh, long story short, we stayed in there and we got busted only because uh, um, my sister got tired of taking care of us at nine years old. It was like, I can't do this anymore, you know. So um, pretty much um, CPS came and uh, took us away. And, and from there on we got uh, separated. First, at first, we were together at a place in um, Dallas, very called uh, uh, St. Christopher's. Um, but then um, they tried to send us to a foster home, our first foster home. And uh, well, first we went to places in Manhattan. Different, I call them orphans. they call them whatever they want to call them. Facilities. I don't know what you call them. Then we went to Brooklyn. Then we got tra- our case got transferred. I don't know if it was due to religion. Apparently, something happened with religion. So I don't know how we went from one service to another, but. At any rate, we went to another place, and they put us, uh, that place in Dallas Ferry had like a thousand kids running around, no joke, um, and I remember the, the people used to come every Saturday and Sunday and pick which kid they wanted, like we were cattle, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, it was really annoying, but one day my mom came, my foster mom came and got me, but the first family that came and got me, um, they were in Austin, i never forget them, so I left there real quick because the older sons who were like 18 tried to get me, a six-year-old, in bed by playing house. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and thank God my sister walked in just in time to not be, uh, call me a victim, thank God. Uh, and so she told us to pack our bags, and we, and we, we didn't have anything to pack, but put a plastic bag. We didn't have anything to put in it. So we ran to the porch, and she sent me to the porch. So we didn't know. She tried to burn the house down. And apparently, the police came and picked us up, and they were like, what are you doing? We're like, waiting for our mom. And so so because of that incident, we got split up. They considered my sister, like, you know, all oh, something's wrong with her. But the problem the problem with that is they would never listen to anything we said. We tried to tell them, but, of course, the mother and father weren't home, so they didn't even know their sons were perverts. Uh-huh. But they, now, from what I hear, um, from what I hear, and I did some research on them, one's actually in jail for life now or something, for something we did, and the other one is alcoholic or something crazy. So they didn't turn out well anyway. But, uh, but, um, the long story short, no one believes a foster kid, especially in the 70s. If I say, oh, somebody's trying to hurt me, they'll be like, yeah, right. And and to them, I should have been grateful that I even had a home coming from Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I separated from my sister because she was labeled as too mature and motherly to us, which, which, by the way, I go around speaking to social workers and telling them, like, yeah, you think?
2: I uh-huh. think
1: that we need to give this, these kids awards. That actually was smart enough to know to go steal a loaf of bread, or we would have came to you dead, not not mal- malnutrition. We would have came dead. Mm-hmm. Pretty, if it wasn't for my sister, remember, you know, remembering, oh, we gotta find food. I don't know how. When well, my mother would leave with no lights, no water, no food, and we have my, my sister was smart enough to take the, the little bit of oatmeal that was in there, put some water in it, mix it up, let it thicken, and give us that. Just just as it is. no electricity to cook it, so you have to eat it as it is. Or she'd go to the store. And she, you know, she wasn't a thief, but she had to do what she had to do. So she stole a loaf, um, a loaf of bread, or a stick of butter, and we like, all right, we're gonna eat this. Everybody takes a piece of the block, you know, mm-hmm. because that's all you had. But she was smart enough to know that, and to me, that that type that type of person should be awarded, you know, um, because uh, I can't tell you how many kids were not that brilliant, and the kids starved to death. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we got separated because of that incident, um, unfortunately. And it kind of changed our lives. I grew up in, and I, I went to another home. The other mother came and got us up of this place. Again, we got sent back to the orphanage because we were labeled as whatever. And so this one, I never forgot the day. There was like 600 kids running around the gym waiting for people to pick us out. And she looked all the way across the room and saw my little all afro and my little brother and, uh, and my sister. And so... She asked the worker about us, and the worker told her to take us, not my sister, because of what happened with the fire. So, they didn't—they didn't believe her, her or us when we said no. They were trying to hurt us. That's why she did that. They just—I—I I, I just can't believe. I, I wonder how many kids were placed there and was also messed up. I found out from a girl. This is how small the foster world is, okay? Mm-hmm. So when you place kids in one area, you got to be really careful, especially if they're in an abusive household, because it'll get around. Because I I found one of the girls that used to live in a place in Katona, and she also was being abused uh, by someone. But she knew the family in Austin and the brothers. That's how I learned the fate of them. That she said their her family used to drink with the other people, so they were like alcoholic. I call them alcoholic pedophiles because they're her their her foster father was actually sexually abusing her since she was fifteen, and the boy her and the, it doesn't matter they all the lots to kids. So. You know, this is how small a world it is. Um and, and I just found this out now like thirty years later. So how crazy is that? And so it's um, it's very telling that uh wow, what what they put us through. Um, but but it always comes back in full circle if we survive it. That's the catch. Mm-hmm. I'm blessed that I didn't and I tried you know, I tried the suicide thing once when I was like fifteen didn't work I I could not cut myself with the razor blade thank god it wasn't sharp but when I went to test it with my finger of course it worked uh and then I was too chicken by that point uh so I learned then like you know what nope no matter what it is if you're breathing you were meant to be here so I always had something in my head telling me that you know you got not divine purpose because I didn't know what that word meant then but I had something just always be like I got you don't worry you know even when I was going through my abuse there was always something and not something like Sybil But something, you know, something, something really like I call it God saying to me, "You'll be okay. You're gonna be fine. Don't worry. You'll you'll get through this. And you just, you're gonna just you'll find a way. Get out. You'll, you'll make it out." So I've always had that attitude, and that was even before my foster mother instilled it in me, uh, which is ironic because you would think we all the kids would turn out the same. But the one that the two that abused me were also being abused by another foster mother allegedly. Uh, but the one that, one of the ones that abused me got seven years for molesting his four-year-old niece. And then they finally looked back and called me and was like, oh, my God. So with the story you were telling us, I was like, yeah. Okay, so you thought I was really just a hot nine-year-old? Like, really? So now that everyone looks back and says, oh, my God, they're ashamed of themselves. And they apologize. And even the abuser actually apologized. The other one before he got killed and the other one apologized when he got out of jail. So that's commendable, I've got to say. Um, but I just say we can't sit and have tea and crumpets just because you apologize. Because my life is totally, my life is not ruined, but my um, sense of uh, trust and um, innocence is is ruined uh, for that, and it will never be uh, revived. So um, I I can accept it now, but I don't want to be sitting around. I I did it for years where I would go to the family, you know, family holidays because I didn't want to feel alone and didn't want to feel like I, they wanted to adopt me, but the reason why I didn't get adopted was because they had adopted him, hmm. one of my sisters. And then that would be like, oh my God, that's it. Even though I still call it incest, even though we're not blood related, I still call it that because to me, I, I was told he was my brother and that's how I felt. And I trusted him and I we had a great, great family up until that moment those, that that happened. So, uh, um, you know, I was uh, very blessed and I still was blessed because it, at least when they did find out, my, my foster mom said, I promise you, it'll never happen again. And it didn't happen again once she knew my aunt slept in my bed. My foster aunt came from Georgia and slept in my bed. And one of the other one came in and was drunk. He was a teenage alcoholic. And he came in and he, and he uh, made the threats that he made, that he normally makes me because he thought it was me in the bed. And luckily it was her. So I laid there and was like, please, Lord, let this be the day. And it was. She, she said she laid there because she wanted to see what he would do. And if I was a willing participant. So she realized what his threats and what he when he got more forceful that she was like, oh, this is not no... Hey, let's meet up tonight. You know this is this is abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unfortunately, flipped it on the road because they didn't want the other, I don't know, ten kids. I don't know how many my mom had in and out. Um, to go back to the orphanage because some of them had never uh, been to an actual home. This is their first time at a home, and she didn't want to go back to the street life and, and have them defend themselves. It would be almost like putting an animal that you raised all their lives in your home, and now you tell them to go to the wilderness. Like it can be done, probably, but it's probably going to be turned out pretty ugly uh so i understood as a mother once i had kids um and and i try to have compassion about it but i just to me i just can't i forgive but i can't forget because even i knew at five years old that that kind of stuff was wrong so why did i know and 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 even when i was going through it i knew so why would i know and someone else doesn't know like why can't you you were 15 you don't know there's wrong to do that to to a girl you don't, especially as it's supposed to be your sister. Like you, and you, so that means to me two things. You don't even think I'm your sister, because for you to do that is like, what you know what I'm saying. Like the, mm-hmm. I just understand the human mind that you would think that any part of that would be okay. That's that's the difference. So I got through it anyway. Um, I'm I'm trying to steer back on track here. I got through it, um, but uh, see, even though CPS separated us, we were seeing my sister for a while. Uh, in Gosbury. And, you know, that was pretty rough on her, I'm sure, because, you know, to be labeled and I'm sure, you know, kids build up jealousy, like why she get to go there and I don't, you know, that whole thing. So it's it's annoying. I I didn't get to see my sister again, unfortunately, until my mother died when I was 17. Um, That's the last time, that's when I got to finally see my family again. I was not allowed to because my mother lost all her rights uh, by not showing up for three three visits. Um, And before she did that, she came to my house I lived up here uh, in Bedford, uh, and disguised herself, her and my aunt Rose, and pretended to be these other ladies with my friend's grandmother. And uh, they were asking me all these questions. I was like, you smell like my mother. You look like my mother. You wear stuff that my mother would wear, like stuff like that. And they were like, no, I'm not your mother. <laughs>
2: I'm
1: not, I know I look like her. What does she look like? Tell me. You know, they try to throw me off. I was a young kid, you know. But I knew it was them. And I think what happened is she saw this and was like, there's no way I can give them this. There's no way. So even if they suffered abuse um, or anything that happened, they still would get a number one education and, and not have to worry about, you know, gunfights and drug dealers and, you know, all that stuff, starvation. Uh, so I think she just, you know, kindly bowed out, which I, I commend her, because that's a hard thing to do. Very I could, I could never do it for my kids. I have two wonderful daughters. So there's no way in hell I don't care if I have two 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 pots to rub. Um, I'm I'm gonna find a way because that's the one thing my foster mother trained me too is you 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 keep fighting to the very end. You know it's not over to the fat lady sings. So uh-huh. uh, even if some people say, oh well, you know um, I got pregnant and I can't afford to take care of it. Well, you know what? It happened for a reason, and you got to figure out what's the plan here because every life has meaning and has a value in my opinion. Um, and I'm glad my mother didn't abort me. Like that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Is, all, all three of us, because my mother—remember, she was married to my sister's father. So she cheated three times, which is all her addiction, I'm sure. And then these—how do you gonna have three boyfriends, separate times? Of course, um, we were—we were like all two years apart. And then at some point, when I had to go to court, change my age—I don't know now. I'm like confused. Um, but uh, but how do you um, how do you come back from that? Like <laughs> three different. Uh, baby daddy so that's say. a difficult path yeah yeah and he was good I don't know how he was good and we got his la- we got my sister's father's last name Cooper that's not and re- he's really a Sepio uh, he's Italian he's half Italian he changed it so I don't know how that happened but either way you know so what that? We, we, we made it through and then so my brother Rob that grew up with me in foster care this is how I started foster care tonight. Uh, my brother Rob that grew up me in foster care he um he died ten years ago of heart disease at forty-one, and uh, that that kind of that kind of devastated me. Were, and, um, were you
0: the closest to him?
1: Oh God, we were like twins, and they even said in our records, do not separate these two; they could not live without each other. Because we were even when I was at home with no lights, no water. I everything I did, and every when I was sitting there starving and pains in my stomach, was because I would look at his face and be like, I got to be an example for my brother. I got to be example for my brother, and my sister. You know, it was like I gotta be a sample for my sister and brother. You know, so we always that's what got us motivated and always got us through no matter what was going on. I mean, I we've had a gun held to my head when the mob came in to get my drug money, collect drug money for my mother, and the boyfriend had shot it up, and which is kind of how he died. Um, and uh, and so we've had some really serious incidences, but we stuck through them no matter what. We'd be sitting in the dark with no lights, no food, rats running around, but we'd be like, okay, we got each other, we're happy. You know, mm-hmm. so that's how close Rob and I were very close. And Rhea too, it's just that they took us, took her away from us at one point. So that's how we lost our closeness. But we were very, we were like thick Anytime you go through that kind of trauma with a sibling, you're going to be closer than most, most siblings. You know? Wow. Because you have to, like, you rely on each other just to do a check system mm-hmm. to I, the crap you're going through. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have to have a checkpoint uh, so that you can say, okay, I'm going to get up today. Uh, And, and like, suicide never crossed my mind as a kid because, A, I didn't know what that was, and, B, I was like, I'm fine. I have my brother and sister here. There's nothing really wrong. My mom's sick, but that's about it, you know? It wasn't, like, a problem. Now, looking back in hindsight, it was a big problem, but I didn't even notice it because I had a brother and sister, you know? And then when baby Mark was born, it was like, oh, we got the baby, but... That became a tragedy uh, because my mom, you know, as soon as she got out of the hospital, and as soon as that milk was gone, how are we going to feed baby Mark? That's one of the reasons why my sister called CPS because she had three kids crying from starvation, and you know, you can't have, you know, malnourished kids, uh, and you can't find a way to eat them. And if you go to the store and steal, they're going to be like you're a thief, and then that's a problem. So she just got tired of it, and I don't blame her. Um, you know, I'm so happy that she did that. Um, but I got into Foster Care tonight because of my brother Robert. We used to sit as foster kids, and nobody else really knew. Well, they knew, but we, they didn't care. I don't think they cared. Some people didn't know, um, but our neighbors treated us so good. You know, the Tuckers and and um, you know the uh, all the families around us, the Lafuentes, the um, you know all the all the lovely uh, families around us just treated us so good that that we were just always so blessed, and so we were like, oh, how can we help somebody else? My brother said, "Yo, Coop, we got to help all the foster kids. I was like, yeah, we do. So we like thought it like, okay. So I wrote this book, Surviving Foster Care and Making It Work for You on Amazon. And it's a self-help book, um, Oprah's Ah Moment, as they call it,
2: on mm-hmm.
1: um, the things I went through when I lived in an orphanage in a group home. Just quick tip lessons for like teenagers and people to quickly go through and be like, yeah, so the 10 no-nos, you know, 10 things you avoid while you're in foster care you know, finding good friends, stuff like that. And then I share my story as I go along. But I make the reader think like a foster kid and feel like a foster kid. Uh, and I think I did that. There's, I, I did find, you know, a couple of things, a couple of errors in the book that the editor didn't catch, um, just typo stuff. But but the overall message is powerful. And, and, and I complete the purpose because I know social workers have told me, wow, so it's one thing you graduate and you're a social worker, but to feel like that child feels will totally give you a different experience on how you treat that child.
2: Yeah.
1: You see, so when you go to confiscate a kid from a home, you're going to carry a disposable camera in your pocketbook because you know it's going to be the last time that you ever have a picture of them when they're little, probably. Mm -hmm. have a piece of food with you because they're not going to be, they're going to be starving probably, especially if the mother was on drugs, like my mother. She'd be gone for five days. So by the time the caseworker got there, it was like day seven. I hadn't eaten. I had like a, a, a maybe a slice of bread or I don't know whatever we would steal off the racks that the, the guys put the stuff out, whatever you could steal, very little stuff because we didn't want to be seen as thieves, you know? So when they came, it would have been nice to say, Oh, here, and here's a plastic bag. Let's put your stuff in here. Let's make some of your toys. Let's bring something you remember. But they didn't do that, you know? And so I talked in this book in the end to social workers, people who, cops, people who work with foster kids, you know, how to have a different compassion level. And, and for the kid. It makes them know that your your journey is not by itself. There's other people have the same journey, and we're we're fine. We made it out. We're okay. We're warriors, you know. So Foster Youth and I aims to. We we focus on aged out foster youth because that when you turn eighteen or twenty one, depending on what state you are, in, that's when the agent says bye. Here you go. Have a you're good You're on life.
0: your own. Yeah.
1: Yeah, on your own, and if you're lucky, really lucky. They put you in a transitional housing or an apartment, or they give you a section eight title if you're really lucky. If you're not lucky, which most kids are not that lucky, you end up in jail, institution, on drugs, and now sex trafficking. Especially in Texas, that's a big thing. Oh big yeah. Thing. Sex, that's they coming straight for them. I just sat with the commissioner and um, he's his sex trafficking team, and they told me stories that were like mind boggling. That that this is that they go for the foster kids now because they know when you age out, where are you gonna go? Uh-huh. So all they got to do is, hey, you want to smoke a little weed, sweetie? Because you're so cute, you know, so cute and adorable. And I get you to smoke some weed, and I lace that weed with heroin. The next thing I know, I put something else on it. And now I got you shooting dope. And now I got you doing whatever I need you to do. Cause uh-huh. you're to do what you have to do to get that drug. And I know that from the drug counseling side. So this foster kids are being targeted at a higher number. Immigration, Immigrated children are being targeted at a high rate. So I'm trying to figure out how can we counteract uh, and and, buy, and get this uh, get this situation under control. Um, I'm actually going to sign up as a foster parent because I I'm hoping that I would get one of those immigrant children so that at least I'd be one of the parents that I want to make sure that they live a quality of life. But I also want them to return to their home.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal. How do um how do people learn more about some of the things that you do and what are some of the ways that people get in t- get in touch with? In person events or any other platform type um, activities that people get a chance to be
1: a part of it? Mm-hmm. Well, um, our website is www.fosterkidsuniteinc.com with one word. And then our um, email is uh, fosterkidsuniteinc at gmail.com. And our phone number is 914 646 if um, you leave a number, and it's time to call you, usually someone will get back to you. Um, and then um, our main events are in May, the Foster awareness Month, where we make awareness about what's going on. We give out our scholarships in May to age.fossey, a $500 scholarship for those who apply. They can get an application if they call or email. Um, they have to be verified as foster or former foster. So they're probably in the senior year or they're in college already.
0: It's and this year. is only within the state of New York, Correct.
1: No, it, it's it's technically, but not technically. I mean, I did meet a girl in Ohio on a conference I did with 300 foster kids um, and I think it was at Ohio State. Uh, and um, and I met her through the social worker. So she was able to apply for the scholarship and didn't have to be there because we knew her for a fact. She really wasn't here. And we, we were able to verify that. So sometimes people make up elaborate lies just to get the money or just to, So that's why we... We like to come to the event to claim the money, uh, uh-huh. or else we qualify them. But but there are some cases, and if you know of something or someone that's really in need, um, contact us and see if we verify the year that you check out. Then we'll we'll go with your word and uh, let them apply, and um, and won't mind, um, you know, figuring out the mailing mm-hmm. you know, the you check we you need to do. The details. Uh, so without just because just because it's not in New York, you know what I'm saying? hmm Like that kind of thing. So, um, I, I like to keep, I always say start at home first. That's why I started here in Westchester County, because that's where I'm living. I like, uh, most of my kids are from Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens. I have one that was in Florida. I have one that was in Ohio. I have one that was in Philly. And one that's in, uh, somewhere else. So, but they were verified, you know? So if it's verified, I know they're really in school, school is verified. I will sometimes make an exception. So please don't think it's just New York, because. Uh, this kid, you know, I always say the kid that's hungry is the one that gets the worm. Mm. You know, I, have, I have kids here. I sent out applications last um, this year that just passed, and do you know about twenty something kids did not even do the application? It's the smallest application you will ever see. I'm not kidding. It's like two paragraphs and then a, a, uh, an essay. Boom, a small essay. Boom, they didn't do it and, and because in their head they're thinking it's only five hundred bucks. It used yeah. to be fifty bucks, but to me. This is how I got through NYU. I sat through NYU and my stomach would be growling because all the kids would get snacks during December holiday before they go to do the final exams. Uh, and uh, all the kids would get a box from their mother. They had to pre-sign for it. And they'd get a box and I said, what is that? She said, that's my snacks. I said, snacks? I said, grown people, what are you gonna uh-huh. say? I said, well, my parents signed for it and it gets sent on testing day. So I was like, oh, so that's how I started the gift boxes. In December. We get, um, it used to be a big bin that we'd get together and put in um, laundry detergent, maxi pads for the women, deodorant, soaps, um, to- toiletries, school supplies, backpacks, whatever they needed, um, and gift cards, uh, and-, and gift gloves, and socks, and underwear. And then we'd send it, or we'd find the kids, and then the agency would come pick it up, or we'd go and give it to them if they were local. Uh, and so that's how we started that because I was one of those kids that sat there with stomach growling. Or they'd say, "Oh, time! Let's go for our study group. We're gonna go meet at Starbucks." And I couldn't go because I didn't have a Starbucks card and I had no money. So we give them mm-hmm. Starbucks cards, subway cards, um, you know, um, different things. That it's we amazing. Made. CVS cards. The
0: essentials, yeah.
1: Yeah, just some things that your mom would normally send you, but because you don't have a mom, they're not gonna you're not gonna get that. So um, one of my girls went to South Korea for six months, and we we tried to help her for six months she was there. Our board members went above and beyond. We sent her money or gift card whatever she needed because we just wanted to make sure she was safe and she knew she has somebody to have that has her back if she needed it mm-hmm. so so we try to i just want to make sure whoever is in college or applying to college or trade school that they finish that's what i want to know mm-hmm. finish. complete the job because then i know they they have the tools to be sustainable you know you could be like me i got a degree from nyu it doesn't really mean anything because I, I i do my own thing I, I don't really like having a boss at all. That's
0: what you um, do with it, yeah.
1: yeah so I I, I do five hundred other things, um. But you know I have it, and no one can tell me, you know, they can't tell me, oh, we're only gonna give you eight dollars an hour. You can't tell me that because I have a BA and I worked hard for it, you know. And actually, I've been in school nine years. I could have had a PhD by now, but I changed my major two times.
2: <laughs> so
1: go figure. So you go figure. But but you know, you 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 have to. Um, we have to give what we can. And mm. my thing is my brother used to tell me T and I used to be like, oh, when I get famous, because see, since I used to watch Carol Burnett and Johnny Carson and a Saturday Night Live, I'd be like, oh, one day I'm gonna do that job, Johnny Carson, that's me. I'm gonna do that. I didn't know what it was. So I used to think, because in my head, I knew I saw how people would flock to him and they'd be like, Yeah, we're we're trying to help multiple sclerosis, and boom, people write a check. And I said, Oh my god, I can do this with foster kids. So that's where not it wasn't vanity, it was that if everybody knows me, guess what? They're going to help me find my brother. And um, I can help any foster kid in the world that I want to. I, mm-hmm. can build, I can do anything I want because I will have not only the money, but the resources and the contact to get stuff done. You see? So yeah. that's where that thing came. And then I realized I'm Aquarius and I'm a true artist. So <laughs> even if I was a foster kid, I probably, if I was born Aquarius, I'd probably still be the arts. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go figure. But the, we have a yearly awareness event in Mount Kisco usually um, it's at, at um, the Library. Um, every Library. The end of May or the first week of June. We try to do it in May because that's National Forest Care Awareness Month. We have the cookie angel that sends um, with her own money and her own time, Kathy. We love her. She sends them uh, the hand-baked Bisconti and cookies and a gift card if it's their birthday. You know, she's amazing. Uh, and then we have gift boxes in December. Around December, the first of December, we send out what we call gift boxes filled with gift cards and all the items you need for the dorm and stuff um at the end of the semester um and we send it to them so that they have an easier christmas so that even if they don't have family still or somewhere to go they can sit and enjoy themselves or treat their friend who's always been like family just again you know little things like that so um how how can that community help that's that's the big question Mm -hmm. um how can we help by having compassion uh, internships, if you own a business, if you know the, so if you living near a local home, maybe you want to see if there's a kid in there that needs work that you can train how to be a good uh, a good worker. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can supply a job. You know, housing. Maybe you have a big old house and you can rent a room or a room with a bathroom. Um, or you know someone who can rent a room and you can just lay down the ground rules. Foster kids are very resilient. They're very smart and very resilient. They're usually great people. So if you come in and, and, and sit down rules, they usually will follow you because they want to just be secure. Mm-hmm. We want security. You know what I'm saying? Even if we didn't get the love, we want the security. So create safe environments, yeah. Yeah. Wanna be safe. That's it. So if you have a room to rent an apartment, have a little, you know, compassion for them. Um, if you have a home for the holidays and your kids hang out with a kid from the group home or knows a kid from the group home, maybe you want to invite them over for dinner for the holiday. You know, what I'm saying, um, you can pretty much tell someone's character once you get to know them. If they're, you know, trifling and a thief or something like that, you can tell. And if that happens, I say cut all ties, of course. Hmm. But that's not usually the case. Usually, we don't have time to get in trouble because we ain't trying to move to another home. So that's usually, um, from what I, the kids I've seen and worked with, they don't want to get in trouble. They, they but they don't really want to because then you gotta move again. You done moved thirty times already. Yeah. You know, so trying to find stability, love. Uh, people that that belong you know that will put us in their tribe we we will have a sense that we want to belong somewhere um if you can mentor that's what we do at foster future United, we mentor to people match your skill set to a youth in college so if you know you're a good mathematician and uh you know maybe you go to a local college are there any kids to are in care i know you can't identify them can we leave our car for us to tutor them in a library or something i don't know something like that uh care package sponsorship Maybe you can donate to our organization, um, www.fosterkidsuniteinc.com, and um, and put a note in there saying, you know, this is the sponsored care package. That's fine. Uh, and anyone in the field, uh, hope you have compassion. Because uh, any c- catastrophe can strike and make a kid parentless. Mm-hmm. Did you know that 7% of foster kids get to college, must less graduate? Um, and we're hoping at Foster Kids Unite Incorporated to raise the stats by supporting you who are already in college a trade
2: school? Mm,
0: that's incredible. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story Great. and you know the different things that you guys are doing. I, when I had come across your story and we connected a little while ago, it, it only made sense for me to reach out to you and learn from your perspective and also give our audience an opportunity to learn about the system of what it's like to actually go through it and. What are the things that are being made as far as possible changes from those who have experienced it? You know, there's so many things that you hit spot on as far as being someone who had lived through it, because that's the one that you can really understand the change that needs to happen. Now, before that, there are so many elements that you have to understand. And that is, I think, before you can get into the position where you can heal someone, you have to heal yourself first. And so in this case it's not any different and you're definitely doing the work and you have done the work just like you said 20 plus years of therapy and being able to understand the things that happened to you and redefine them and in terms that you want to live by so mm-hmm. i appreciate your sharing the story i appreciate you being um a guest on our show and um just like you said for anyone that's interested in wanting to learn more please check out tanya's organization And we'll be sure to include all the links in our podcast notes and everything else that follows beyond this. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our monthly newsletter which features latest stand-up and speak-up stories, ways you can be involved with overcoming odds, and information on any of our upcoming events in the cities surrounding you. Once again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.